Welcome to the Ezra podcast. And we're talking about some fights this weekend that actually happened. Now, that's going to be the Fandora card versus Ocampo. Now, there was another fight that was supposed to happen that was pretty big, especially in uh, Europe. It was going to be really huge, right? And I think here it was getting a little bit of buzz, or just what it, you know, people would have been curious. Now, it's Connor Ben versus Chris Eubank Jr. Now, that fight didn't happen. I want to go over real quick just what exactly the events that led to this fight not happening. I Sometimes I talk on here as if everybody is in, under the same understanding that I am. I got to realize that I'm talking to more, you know, just to reach like a general audience or like if you just can't follow boxing as closely as I do, but you want to know, what, you know, what happened, I could fill you in. So there was a fight, obviously, that was going to happen. Chris Eubank versus Connor, uh, Connor Ben, which was very hard to make, very difficult as far as the weights and rehydration clauses and all these things, two different promotions, but it was going to be a big fight. And we were approaching the week of the fight, approaching the public workouts, all the things for the press to gain the attention as the fight's going to happen the weekend. And news breaks uh, per article um, that Connor Ben has failed a, a, a VADA test, right? He had come up dirty for a performance-enhancing drug. Now, the key part to know about this is that this was made aware to Connor Ben, Matchroom, uh Chris Eubanks and his promotion, as well as the commission in September. They did not cancel the fight when they found that out, right? Uh, Chris Eubanks' team was aware of it. I guess they had asked doctors and, you know, figured out when the test was taken. They just felt that they were comfortable to still go ahead with the fight. Connor Ben's team, of course, still wanted to go ahead with the fight. There's a lot of money to be made, you know what I mean? So, of course, the fighters want to go ahead with it. The promotions want to go ahead with it, of course, because a lot of money to be made. The networks want to go ahead with it, of course, because a lot of money to be made. But the most, to me, uh, important part of it, because I think you can make a reasoning on why everybody else wanted to go ahead of it with it, is the commission never canceled the fight when they found out that Conor Ben had come up with performance-enhancing drugs in his system. And didn't cancel the fight or... Um, you know, interrupt this fight or, you know, stop this fight from happening until it was reported on a news article. So that means that they were perfectly fine letting this fight go ahead, but until the public backlash and the um, bad publicity had come out there, that's when they decided to say, no, we're not going to have this fight. That's very important because I think that if you just look at the story, you're just going to think, oh, the commission did a really good thing here. And they ended up doing the right thing. That is correct. But they did the right thing after they had no choice but to do the right thing without really receiving a big backlash of what was going to happen. So this fight gets canceled. They said that, you know, they want to make it clear that Conor Ben is not suspended because this test wasn't through the, the, um, the testing agency that that commission uses. It wasn't. It was outside of that. It was a voluntary testing system that he is signed up for with the um, WBC. But they still decided to acknowledge that failed test and move forward with delaying the fight. Now there's going to be an investigation. They're going to look into the VADA testing. They're going to look at the results. And it might lead to a four-year suspension for Conor Ben. It feels a little drastic, right? Four years. So when I first, my first impression was like, what are we doing here with that? Four years seems like a lot. The one thing that is kind of coming out, though, and it's, it's kind of like, 
peeks its ugly head uh, once in a while, especially when we get these field tests, is that in boxing, there's probably a lot of people cheating, right? There's probably a lot of people using PEDs, especially for recovery, but uh, for for cardio issues, stamina, um, you know, longer training sessions, all those things. And they're not getting caught. And a lot of people are saying that the, you know, the testing is more of an IQ test, right? And that the best doctors and the ones that are, you know, uh, very familiar with the system can get a fighter through the system without getting caught. So if the testing can never catch up to the, to the, the PED and to these new doctors, right? It's always going to be behind. Well, what is the one thing you can do that can really stop someone from going and doing this, right? Can really make it very risky to do this. And that would be a suspension so long, they would basically almost ruin your career. So four years sounds insane. Really does. Like you were like, oh, it's first test and he's up four years. But if you're under the understanding, right, that the, that a lot of guys are taking this and there's no way that the testing could ever be ahead of them on this, then the only way to get someone to stop is to make the punishment so severe that you won't even take the risk. Now, Carter Ben is, a, in, is in a situation here that it could be very bad for his career because he could be the person they make an example of. And this happens a lot with laws, especially when someone's famous and there's a lot of attention to the story. A lot of times that you people will use that to make an example and let everybody else know that we ain't playing games here. And I think there's there's might be a good chance that that happens here. And, you know, Conor Ben would have no one to blame but himself. Now, he claims he's a clean fighter, but, you know, we know that story. We know that song and dance. If he can prove it, he can prove it. But it's the same thing as, like, you know, getting caught, right? I, don't, I, I just, it's very hard to, you know, to recover from it. It's not, not saying, like, his career will be done. It just depends, you know, on the suspension. I think he'd come back and people eventually, you know, move past it if he kind of doesn't test dirty again. But if it's, like, a big baby Miller situation where you just test positive and for everything, every PD on the planet Earth, then, you know, that's when, you know, just credibility is completely lost. But as much as a four-year suspension sounds severe, it might be the only answer, right? And if you pass the test, you pass the test. And it's going to be the point where as boxing fans, we're just going to acknowledge that if they pass the test, they pass the test. And that you might have to accept that some of these guys are on something. But if that punishment is severe and you are, and you do take the chance and you do fail it, you have to pay that punishment. I then at that point, I don't think four years is that bad. I actually think that it's actually a good idea to do four years. You want to take the chance, take the chance, but know what the punishment is. I don't, I don't, it, it doesn't sound like a bad idea after you think, really think about it. And you think about the, how many fighters are probably on this stuff and the advantages they're gaining from being on it. And if they're fighters that are clean, the disadvantage that they are at. I do want you to remember, though, that some of this is for show, right? Because their testing is usually only for, like, the main event. The strict, rigorous uh, testing that's going on here. And a lot of the undercards are not tested like that. And a lot of the undercards are using. And boxing, because it's such a 
wide open sport and there's a lot of lower level cards that are not testing at all. And I'm a guy that fought on a lower level card. I could guarantee you I was not tested. And if I was, it was like the day before the fight. So I, th- I don't think those are catching uh, many or, or anybody. So th- don't think that, the, oh, now the sport's clean because of this, because it's not, and you're lying to yourself. Now, a lot of these sports probably aren't clean, but remember that the boxing as a sport is huge, humongous, and spread out, and not under one commission or one, you know, umbrella. It's not. So you have to be aware that the guys coming up, and the guys working these club shows, they're probably a, a lot of guys using PEDs. Also, I was asked a question on Twitter, like, are you pro or against PED testing, right? And there was a lot of people that said, don't test. Now, the issue with that, and it was a lot of interesting points, and one of the ones that I thought was most interesting was be the financial advantages that people would get. Because some fighters can afford the best stuff, and other fighters can't. So then it wouldn't even be a level playing field saying, like, oh, they're on PEDs. Because, no, some fighters could afford maybe expensive um, PEDs that wouldn't be uh, accessible to all lower-level fighters. So they would never be able to, to uh, cover that gap. Unless they could somehow get like you know enough wins and notoriety, so then they could get to that point. So that wouldn't work either. There's always going to be some kind of advantage. So I think the testing, of course, needs to happen. Now I'm not, and I'm just not going to be naive about it and thinking that they're catching everyone that's doing. But I think that the punishment should be severe. So if you are going to willing to take that chance, you just know that if you get caught, it's probably game over for you. But let's get to some fights that actually did happen. Oh, not yet. Not yet, Jack Reese. You're always trying to interrupt, Jack Reese. You're always trying to make it about yourself. We'll get to you. But let's get to Fondora Ocampo. And we'll start off with the main event. And once again, Jack Reese will make an appearance. But on my on my terms, Jack. On my terms. So we get to Fondora Ocampo. And it's a very, very interesting. And this is why you watch all these fights. This is the reason why if you're going to cover boxing, if you're going to talk to sport, you have to watch everything. Because the perspective of the fan is very interesting. And it will let you know how something, how people could get people's opinions about a fighter can be molded in a certain way on just the perspective of a matchup that they had. So going into this fight, Ocampo, who was coming off a few, uh, uh, you know, a good winning streak, but over fighters that, if you look on just box record, the records are nothing's impressive. No names are recognizable. No one's record is, um, you know, extremely impressive. None of those fighters' resumes are great. But if you watch Ocampo and through that stretch, you you see skills in him, abilities in him, and a, a know-how of boxing and knowing what he does, knowing how to handle himself in the ring. This shows you that he's a skilled fighter. Now, he has the loss, the first round loss to Earl Spence, who Earl Spence is one of the best fighters in the world. There's no shame in losing Earl Spence, but the way he lost to him, it just looked like he just was nowhere near that level. So people have that memory of him, right, which is his biggest fight, which is probably the only fight that a lot of people have ever seen him in. And then he goes on this win streak. He moves up in weight. But people come into this matchup like, oh, this is a squash match, right? It's a mismatch. This is a, a fight that Fandora should easily win. And when that happens, Fandora's already against it because he's actually fighting a, a capable fighter, a skilled fighter. But people think that he should run through him. 
And once the people think that he should run through him, he's really in a no-win situation. This is the problem with matchmaking. Is that matchmaking has to know that you have to bring someone against a guy like Pandora that is going to somehow raise his stock or raise his notoriety. And Ocampo doesn't do any of those things for Fundora. Now, maybe the way the fight ended up going, it kind of did. But as far as like the pre-matchup hype, it, this wasn't the right, the, this wasn't right for Fundora. This wasn't the right matchup. Now, I said going into this fight that I thought Ocampo could be very tough in this fight. And I said that if this was like a fight where Fundora chooses to use his reach and his length, and pick his shots, he would actually be in trouble in this fight. I thought he would actually lose this fight. I think that was accurate to start the fight. First four rounds, I had Ocampo up 3-1. And I thought that when Fedora fought at range, and he used his length, and he tried to pick his shots, Ocampo was getting the better of it. And I knew Ocampo would be better at that point. And I don't think that people somehow can get over the the fact that, that Fedora is tall and doesn't use his reach and length. And they, they just assume that that's what he should do. Because he has that. And it's an easy thing to call out, right? Sometimes it's just like the easy things you can see you just say. But the truth is, the Fundor is not good at that. And he's never going to be good at that. And when he does you fight at range or use his length or try to figure out that style, to me, he's like an average to below average fighter. And I thought Ocampo was getting the better of that. But the commentating team couldn't seem to catch up with that. And another thing is that coming into this fight, the commentating team was really shooting the, uh, treating this fight as if it was... Uh, already over and Fedora was already going to win and it was already known what was going to happen. The result was going to happen and Fedora was already up six rounds as soon as the first round started. And it took him a little while to shift and to catch on that Ocampo was in this fight. But they had a, were under the understanding that Ocampo couldn't win a boxing match in this fight. Couldn't win a distance. He needed to get on the inside. Now this wasn't accurate and it wasn't accurate because you could see what was happening in the first four rounds. And as I said, there is a, if Fondora can make this an inside fight, he can make this a pocket fight, a fight where they're exchanging in close range, he would clearly win this fight. And that's exactly what happened. Is that Fondora lost when he was at distance, and when Ocampo stood inside, and they went to exchange with him, and even though the commentating team said this was the right move for him, he was actually at a massive disadvantage because he is not technically at the ability of Fondora on the inside in the pocket. See, People assume like in the pocket is for fighters that have less skill. It's actually so much skill to fight good in the pocket. The leg movement, the cardio, the constant work, it is constant work to fight in the pocket and be skilled at. The legs, the subtle adjustments, the hips, the lowering and raising your body, the um, grabbing angles in a tight, tight area. Like go put yourself in a closet, right? Go put yourself in a closet, close the closet door. And move in a circle. Constantly move in a circle. Keep in a boxy stance and move in a circle over and over again. And how tight those moments are and how explosive they have to be and the energy it takes to be in a constant offensive position, right, to keep your balance, to keep your leverage, to put your hips into all your shots. It's one of the hardest skills to learn in boxing. Inside fighting, fighting in the pocket, pressure is one of the hardest skills to learn in boxing. And a lot of guys do it that are no good at it. And Ocampo, to be honest with you, is no good at it. Now, he has some moves, right? But his legs cannot keep up with Fedora on the inside. So when the commentators are saying that he needs to get on the inside, that's the best fight for him. It actually isn't. It was actually not the fight he needed at all. And not even his trainers knew that that wasn't the fight for him. But I told, I like I said, he needed to box this fight. He needed to keep this fight at his pace, at his distance. 
But when Fedora got on the inside, it looked like Fedora. There was nothing that was unexpected in this fight. This fight went exactly how I expected it. It went exactly how I knew Fedora fights. Everything was to be expected. But it seems like people were, were shocked by this fight or they learned something new from this fight. And I, I, me personally, I didn't learn anything new from this fight. This is the fight that I knew exactly was going to happen. And it went exactly in the, if these scenarios played out, played out exactly how I thought they would play out. But people are saying like, oh, Fandora, you know, he's not that good. Um, Fandora, you know, is overhyped because of Lubin fight. How did Lubin lose to him? And I, I just don't get it because I'm not seeing anything different in this fight that I've seen in all the other fights. On the outside, Fandora is a diminished fighter. On the inside, he's extremely effective. People saying he doesn't use his height, doesn't use his reach. I disagree. He uses it, but just in the pocket. His height, his reach allows him to be in the pocket and see things, right? He's basically watching from a, a watchtower, right? He's like a sniper. And his reach is allowing him to land shots to the body, to the head from, from all angles on the inside. His height is allowing him to see things that the other fighter can't see because the other fighter has to come with his head down. He's watching him down. He's looking down at him. His reach allows him to hit body, head, and he's very skilled on the inside. He's able to touch you wherever you want in your body because he has the reach on the inside. And I know that, see, that's maybe a little complicated thing to understand of how he's using his reach in close, but he is. How he's using his height in close, but he is. Now, I... I understand, yes, defensively, he's not the, the best. It, it also has to do with his height. I mean, what is he, you know, people say, I don't see a lot of head movement from him. He's like six foot seven, and he's 154 pounds. He, he's not going to be, you know, that limber. He's not going to be like going under shots. Now, he could add a little more defensive, but it's, it's his offense, right, that makes him special. It's his offense that makes him an effective fighter. When they got on the inside, this fight was not close, in my opinion. It was competitive, but it wasn't close. He was, his offense was clearly more effective. It was way cleaner. It was more skilled and technical. And Ocampo, although game on the inside, was off balance. He was throwing not precise. He wasn't picking his spots when he threw. He was throwing out the bag like when you're dead tired and you just want to land on it and you're not putting your shots or combos or thought process in what you're doing. You're just kind of, I'm next to the bag. I'm going to work. Fedora doesn't do that on the inside. Fedora is picking his spots. He's very detailed. He's very precise with his game. I think that um, from basically the, the fourth round on, I thought it was all Fedora. That was basically when it turned into an inside in the pocket fight. I thought Acampo uh, showed a good account for himself. I think he is a very good fighter. I think that he's an entertaining fighter. I just don't think he's ever at that level. He's never going to be at that level. But it's just funny to me that they wanted Fedora because he's tall and long range to find the outside. And that wasn't working for him. That was incorrect. He shouldn't have done that. And Ocampo, who is shorter, right, and stockier compared to Fandora, they wanted him on the inside. And that was incorrect. But they couldn't get past it because of just their physical makeups. And that's the funny thing about boxing is that sometimes we just take the simplest 
opinion that you could take because it's so obvious, right? That it should make sense. And it could be completely incorrect. It was completely incorrect in this fight. Now we have to talk about Jack Reese. So let's let's get let's pull up Jack Reese. Jack Reese was the referee for this fight. I believe in the I want to say the ninth round. Jack Reese goes to Compass Corner and tells him that he has to start hitting with harder shots. He has to show him uh he has to show that he's a fighter to Jack Reese. Now, this isn't a competitive fight. Now, it's a fight that I had Fedora winning. And at that point, I had Fedora kind of taken away with it, right? But it was still competitive. You could be winning a fight but by a wide margin, but still be in a competitive fight. Ocampo was in this fight. He was competitive. When Jack Reese does that, he goes in the corner and says that, which he should have never said, right? A, fighter, a referee, you either stop the fight or you don't. You either say, hey, I'm not liking the way you're looking. I'm going to be watching you close. That's fine. I don't even like that. I don't, honestly don't even like that. You either stop the fight or you don't. That to me. But when you start telling a fighter that he has to change his style to your liking or you're going to stop the fight, to me, that's the most dangerous thing you could possibly do. A fighter should do what he's best at in the ring, right? To defend himself in a very, very dangerous sport. And when you tell a fighter that you want him to get out of whatever he's doing in a competitive fight, out of his game, because you feel like this will show you something that he's in the fight. It's it's so dangerous. It's a dangerous thing to do. It's will crumble the fighter's mentality. It will get him out of his game. It actually puts him at more risk. And as a referee, you should never, ever get involved with the fighter's strategy. But Jack Reese felt that he was the guy that to determine that. And I don't know how Jack Reese is the determination of if you're throwing powerful enough shots. He isn't. Okay. And I, I don't know of all the experience that Jack Reese has that he thought that he could do this. If he could overstep his bounds like this. But he did. And, he, and it was a shame. It was a shameful um, fight for him. It was embarrassing. I thought that I legitimately am concerned if Jack Reese covers a big fight, if he referees a big fight, that he will ruin the big fight. At one point, he asked the commission to find the corner. In the middle of a fight, he asked them to find the corner. Instead of taking a point, instead of just being a ref, he was overstepping his bounds and he was doing things that no one's asking him to do during the fight. At another point, in a, a video that I uh, you know, uh, put on Twitter, he looks at Ocampo and like disgust, like if he's embarrassed for him, like if he's let down by him. It's one of the worst refing jobs. Oh, it's the worst refing job of like a big fight this year easily and probably one of the worst in like the last five years it, it was awful uh like i said it's, it's embarrassing he needs to not ref big fights anymore he needs to be talking to he needs to be disciplined but nothing will happen that's the truth of it but it was uh it was shameful that's the only way i could explain it, it was shameful it was uh embarrassing and in a sport that's so dangerous and a sport that he's supposed to be looking for to protect the fighter he's supposed to be looking to make sure that the fight is uh, going within the rule set, right? And that no fighter is taking too much damage, he can stop it. He was asking the guy to be more offensive and put himself at more risk. But in a fight that he was putting himself at a lot of risk already. It was just embarrassing. Jack Reese is, uh, he's a loser this weekend. This weekend, he lost. He was the loser this weekend. Not the fighters, Jack Reese. Now, as far as Fondora going forward, and a lot of people saying, oh, you get knocked out by uh, Charlo. Whatever you felt by Fondora 
uh, when the heat fight show, wherever you feel your prediction is, wherever you're, where you're leaning, it shouldn't have been changed by this fight. That's the only thing I'm saying is it shouldn't have been changed by this fight. This fight is what Fedora does. Now, if Fedora, I see people say, oh, Fedora fights on the inside like this against um, Charlo, he's going to get knocked out. Fighting on the inside against Charlo is his only chance of victory. So if you feel like he's going to get knocked out on the inside, that's fine. That's not, I wouldn't say, oh, you're incorrect. No, no, no. That's, Charlo's a damn good fighter. There's a good chance that he knocks out Fedora. But understand that Fedora's best chance of winning that fight is on the inside. He's not going to outbox him. He's not going to outbox any of the top five guys. His, his fighting style is on the inside. And I hope Fedora learned from this fight. That it's going to take him fighting on the inside like that. And I hope he has the mentality for it. Because, yes, your career might be short-lived. I understand they're trying to figure out something that maybe preserve his career. But the inside fighting is what's going to make him. That's what makes him special. Okay, He's not going to learn how to box unless you're going to rebuild him and take that chance of going back and taking light touches and rebuilding him to learn how to box and fight a distance. It's not going to happen at this level. Personal experience for me. When I started boxing, I started boxing a wild card boxing gym. Now, if you, anyone knows what wild card boxing gym is, that is a place f- for the best fighters in the world. right? That does the best sparring you can get. Guys come from all over the world to spar there. I'm talking guys you see on TV are there every day sparring. You spar, they spar there Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I am a guy that no amateur experience started boxing at 18 years old and had to play catch up in a very quick um, amount of time to get to a point where I could spar these guys. I get in the ring with top pros. Here's the one issue with getting the ring with top pros when you are with less experience, and you are trying to gain knowledge, gain skill. Whatever I worked on that week, whatever I worked on that month, I could not apply it when I sparred a top pro because I needed to use only what worked in my game for sure because if I try something new, I could get knocked out cold. That's the truth of it. The sparring there is not like, I don't know how people spar in other places. I know there's some places where you work, some people like, you know, just work on your thing, working on your game, light light work or you know not aggressive spar not going to war a wild card you go to war that's just the truth of it you're gonna go to war you're, there's not a lot of guys a lot of guys come from other gyms to spar there so there's no really friends like it's everybody's just in there giving what their best the best of what they got so if like I said me I'm in uh I'm not as experienced as them I so when I try to work something I could work something all week I have worked on this uh counter left hook I worked on you know, a double jab, right hand uppercut. I'm not pulling that out in the sparring because it's at such a high level and I'm already at the disadvantage that I have to just use what I'm for sure good at. So that delays my growth. That doesn't allow me to really expand my game because I'm never really getting to apply it. That's what Fondora is at right now. I understand he wants to figure out the boxing part of it, but even like a lower top 10, 15 guy like Ocampo was making him pay for those mistakes. When he fought Sergio Garcia, he almost could, you could almost say he lost that fight because he was trying to box fight at a distance. He's got no time to do that at this point. So they got to just commit and adapt the mentality that this is what your fights are going to look like. This is what you're best at. But if you fight the way you're supposed to fight on the inside like that, you could do some, you could do some amazing things in the sport. But if you're going to try to go back and box it like that, I don't think it's going to work. And I think you're going to get upset. And I think that it's going to lead to disappointment. 
So I hope that they accept the point that they can't box like this. It's not going to work. They're not going to figure it out unless you can take them back to light touches and work your way back up and try to take that chance that he figures it out. Just go to the co-main event. You have Adamus versus Montiel. Now, Montiel was coming off a fight with Charlo where he showed a lot of heart. He showed... He performed way better than people thought he was going to perform. He probably won rounds that he probably didn't win because he was just doing better than what people expected. And he came in with a rep that he was running through big shots. And he might be, a you know, the that might have been his, you know, welcome to 160 pounds where he might be effective after the fight. Got the rub from Charlo and now he was going to go on some run. He goes and takes a, you know, a stay busy fight after that. And he's coming into the Adamus fight. And in a matchup that a lot of people liked, and a matchup that I liked. Now, Adamus, who's a guy that was the top-ranked prospect, they were looking to move along to get a title. He was upset by Texera. In a fight no one saw coming that he was going to lose. And people kind of just, well, I know top rank, which they commonly do, gave up on him. Um, people thought, oh, no, this guy doesn't have it. People thought that he was just all raw ability, but there was no fine-tuning to his game. And I, I think that the PBC saw something in him and said, no, maybe we could get this guy um, on a reasonable deal and we could bring him along. And there's still some talent there. And they were 100% correct. And Adamus, from that point on, has only approved every time I've seen him out. And they definitely, in the Dervichenko fight, box a lot better, a lot more discipline, and Maybe they can't fix his gas tank, but they can fight in a way that preserves his gas tank. And that's what he did in the Derbachenko fight. And now in this fight, I thought he can outbox Montiel. No doubt about it in my mind. And I thought if he preserves himself, he can go full 12, outbox him, save the gas tank, look good against a, you know um opponent that Charlo beat by decision as well. Now, Domus goes in there, he outboxed him right away, first two rounds. He starts landing a lot on him though, and he's starting to fill those shots. And he's like, and he comes in South Paul, and he's like landing a lot. And he's there's a thing that happens when you land a lot on a guy. Even you know, there's guys that have very good chins. So when you have very good chin, a lot of times you get hit a lot because it's not something you have to worry about. A lot of defensive fighters have questionable chins because there's something they have to worry about, so they have to fix that part of their game. If you have a good chin, sometimes you're like, nah, I can take a few shots. You're okay with it. Montiel's kind of guy that. I don't know if he has a very good chip, but he, he's a guy that feels like he could take some shots. And if you look at the Charlo fight, he kind of had, it kind of shows some example of that, right? So the problem is when the guy can take a few shots, is it he has a good chin, you could land on him. And I, I, I've i had this experience too, is you land on someone and then you feel like, well, I'm really landing my shots. And I don't care how good his chin is. If I keep landing like this, I'm going to put him out. And then you end up in a fight where you're really opening up. And then you end up in his type of fight where he's like, okay, now I can start opening up. Because when you open up, no matter how good of a fighter you are, you're giving me openings. Every time you punch, you leave an opening. No matter how good you are, every time you punch, you leave an opening. And I thought, oh no, Adamus is going to get, he's going to like this too much. He's going to like landing too much. And he's going to get in exactly Montiel's fight. And it felt like it was going to happen. Now he's landing massive shots, but then you start seeing Montiel land some massive shots. And then you start thinking, well, Montiel survives this. Adamus is going to struggle the second half of this fight because he's really going to blow his wad. 
but his shots start meaning a lot to Mateo. They start affecting him in a way that I didn't think Charlo's shots were affecting Mateo like this. And he, he starts putting stuff together. And I think because of the rep of what Mateo did in the Charlo fight, that people felt like he could walk through a lot of stuff and be able to take a lot of damage. And because of that, when the ref stops the fight, it feels like an early stoppage because of what you saw Montiel do against Charlo. But if it was any other fighter, not Montiel, and you didn't just have that performance, you'd be okay with the stoppage. I'm okay with the stoppage. I thought it was actually a good stoppage. He's landing cleanly over and over again, and Montiel is backing up, falling into the ropes. And I don't think that this is was... It's fine to say, oh, I could take a shot and everything like that, but you can't take continuous shots in a row and you not blocking or responding. You just can't. I thought it was a good stoppage. I thought it was a gamble by Adamas to do that, and I thought that if Montiel could survive it, he might have been in trouble. But he put himself on the map. He did something that Charlo didn't. He made himself at 160 pounds, really, the, and the only guy in the PPC has it, it's really, to me, a credible fight for Charlo. Right, you could say Laura, but Laura's a little past it, right? Not, not even a little, like a lot past it. But Adamus isn't. Adamus is in his prime. He's getting better. He's more skilled. He's more finely tuned than ever. To me, he made the case that it's him, Charlo, next. It has to be. And January's perfect timing for him. He took the gamble. It paid off. He got the stoppage. And he had the performance they needed to grab the attention. And he did that. So it should be rewarded. And Charlo needs an opponent. And if he ain't going to 168, there's no reason not to fight Adamus. You're on the same side of the street. It's going to be an easy fight to make. Adamus wants it. You need it, if we're being honest. And I think there'll be some excitement for that fight. It's a very interesting fight. It just is. Especially just because I think, honestly, Adamus would be the best guy, even including Dervichenko. The Charlo ever faced at 160. He might be the best fighter he's ever fought at all in his career. If we're being, if if we're, uh, you know, really thinking about it and just the, his physical ability, I just think it's a very interesting fight, and I want to see it. I don't see why it doesn't happen. That's just the honest truth. Now we go to the opening belt. And we have Martinez versus Ancayas. Second, I just want and, th- and this fight was a rematch. Super flyweight uh, for Ancayas. In the first fight, Ancayas loses his belt to Martinez. And, I mean, it, it was more of the same, but just more effective for Mar- Martinez. And I wanted to say about Something about Argentinian fighters, I always talk about this, is in boxing, you know, there's, there's people have, like, I think it's, like, a cookie-cutter way of fighting, right? Like, hey, box, you box like this. A good boxer boxes like this. They do these exact movements. And our summer's Argentinian fighters, they just find a style that works best for what their body can do, right? So I'm not saying they'll all fight the same. I'm saying that they will get a fighter, and he does this well. And they do they find a style that just exploits what he does well. And I think a lot of places, other countries, um, a lot of even there's a trainer that does one style and he tries to get every fighter to fit that one style. 
And I don't think that that's, you know, I don't think that leads to an elite trainer. I think elite trainer uses what you do well and exploits it uh, and makes you better at that style. And this is what Martinez is. I see people saying like he doesn't jab enough or, you know, he just rushes in or, you know, he's doing things that are very skilled in there. Very, very skilled in there. He's very explosive. He, I'm sure at points he looks wild and he is a little rough. Like he's rough. He's, he's, he's headbutting you. He's on top of you. He's taking over your range. But then, you know, like when he's at range, he's not defensively unaware. He's defensively aware. He's not just taking shots just to take them. And he's very strategic on when he jumps in. He's very, very strategic with the shots when he jumps in. And he knows how to throw certain punches that are maybe not like uh, technically the best. But he figured out what punches work at certain ranges to make a fighter pay. And I was trying to figure out. I was watching this fight fight with my dad. I was trying to figure out, what is Ancaius? What could he do to change this fight? What is he doing wrong that's allowing Martinez to just get on top of him the way he is? And my my dad, who's taught me everything I know about boxing, said something and made a case that was was 100% correct. After after he said it, I saw it. Ancaius was too sideways. His stance was too sideways. And if he's not set at the perfect range to land his shots and you jump on top of him, he's sideways. He can't respond. And when Martinez would jump on top of him, he wouldn't be, he would have to set himself in a certain way. And Martinez would have to jump in when he said already, but when he was sideways and they would move his legs would, he couldn't respond to certain angles and he would get off balance and Martinez would get on top of him. And as soon as Ankaias couldn't stay at a balanced stance to, where he was always available, uh, ready to counter what Martinez or hit Martinez when he's coming in, he couldn't win the fight. No, was there uh, was Akaya slowing down his career? Maybe, possibly, but no one had really shown it to this, you know, to the, this point until he fought Martinez. So, I mean, Martinez is going to get full credit in both fights. And I think Martinez is a damn good fighter. And I think the 115-pound division is the best division in boxing. And I think because you keep constantly getting guys like Ancaius and Martinez, who are not even the big names of the division, not even probably because they're like the top four of the division, but would be a tough fight for anyone. And this is just the level 150 pounds, right? 150 pounds, you can go outside the top 10, and the next five are going to be tough, and we'll be in the fight with the best guy, uh, number one. I think Martinez is a very interesting fighter. I'm very interested, very interested to see where he goes from here. Um, I believe he can go wherever the heck he wants. So that means he can go fight guys in Matchroom, um, go fight a guy like Ioka, go fight a guy like Franco, and just mix it up with really anyone in this division. This is the best division in boxing. Look it up. 115 pounds, super flyweight. Look at the top 10. And tell me you can't match up any of those guys and get an interesting fight. And we have a, a, a Estrada versus Chocolatito coming up. To me, to just determine who's the best guy in the division. We got Bam Rodriguez in there. You got his brother Franco. You got Maloney. I mean, you have so many guys. I mean, so Romasai, we continues fighting. Quadras, we continues fighting. Like, there's just so many names, right? Uh, Argy, um, who just fought Estrada. Israel Gonzalez, who just fought Bam, who was in a competitive fight. Like, all these guys that they have in this division are just... You could just like I'm telling you, if you if someone just could just get a hold of this division, which Matchroom is kind of trying to do, they could make fights in great matchups once a month, which is all the names that they have. I'm curious to see where Ankaias goes from here. I 
you know, if he stays with the um, PBC, he's kind of a tough spot because they don't have a lot of names. Uh, and, you know, he, he had to work his way back up to getting like into a title picture or at least a, another big name like that. But if if he could get loose and the, all these guys could get the thing with these networks, the network deals and the network's trying to finally figure it out is like they need They know they need a state claim of a division. You need to get a stable of one division. That way you can make all the fights within that division. That's why like PBC has 147. They, they make all the fights that they need to make at 147. And Matchroom is trying to do the 115 pounds. And because Matchroom controls 115 pounds, all those guys kind of need to work their way to Matchroom so they can get those opportunities. That's the, the, the beauty of the network deals. Like if people say, oh, networks are bad, the network deals. It's not. It's just it's going to take a little time to figure it out how it should work. And these promoters are figuring out that you need to take control of a division. And these fighters are learning, too, that I can't go somewhere if they don't have anyone else in my division. It just doesn't make sense because I'm going to be stuck at one point. But that this was a great card. This was a great night of fighting. Um, it delivered and it made up for, you know, a lost card that we had. Now, next week's going to be jam-packed. And, of course, I'm going to have a breakdown of that. I will have an Ezra live tomorrow. This is today. This is uh, I'm talking on Sunday, 10-9. So tomorrow, 10-10, I will have an Ezra live coming at you um thank you guys for listening this has been the as podcast